This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. I'm tired of being attacked, and I don't really care what the majority of the world says. This is going to be a fun episode. I can feel it. This is a quote from my guest today, J.T. Robertson. And before he begins his story, I have to say that we need to get more veterans who feel this same way and will share their stories because I believe it is imperative for their mental well-being and for everyday average Americans to understand veterans and the things that they have gone through to protect you and me. And having said that, welcome, JT. Howdy. How's How going today? are you? I'm great. Just uh, enjoying the wild, wild west up here in Montana. I know. Bad. We're, we're going to talk about that. I'm excited. Well, let's start from the beginning, JT. I always like to start there. That's always a great place to begin. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about growing up. Uh, so I grew up in West Jordan, Utah, a small town back in the day. Now it's like, it's bigger than most towns in, in a lot of places. Um, went to high school, got my ex-wife pregnant in high school, my junior year to my senior year, you know, nine month gap there. It was kind of like summertime. Didn't have a TV, couldn't figure out what else to do. So that's what we did. And uh, so then I became a dad as a senior in high school. Um, you were a senior in high school. You hadn't even graduated yet. Nope. Didn't graduate yet. Uh, got married in November of my senior year. Um, had to figure out how to support my family. Was working like two jobs at minimum wage back in the day. It was actually real minimum wage, not twenty bucks an hour like it is now or whatever the hell it is. So um, I, uh, I guess growing up, I grew up. My dad is a, is a retired firefighter. Uh, grew up in a firehouse. My mom is. Uh, so my dad's my biological dad. My mom is my mom who chose to adopt us, me and my little brother, um, when we were I think it was like eight, maybe nine somewhere in there eons ago um and i mean there's a lot to that uh that's you know tells about you so a majority of my life i grew up and i was i was taking care of my dad used to work super you know every firefighter has five jobs you know that whole thing just to that's always what they do um and you know i'm forever humble and grateful for like the work ethic he taught me uh however at the same time I'm super mad at him because he taught me this work ethic that i just do too much at the same time but at the same and you know and expanding on that um i'm forever indebted to the woman that i call my mom uh she is the woman who chose to be in my life while my birth mom bounced uh moving forward uh, back to getting um, my ex-wife pregnant in high school um i made a choice to have a kid. So when you make a choice to have a kid, you make a choice to act, to follow through. I believe what I believe, which is absolutely like you follow through on your choice and you do whatever you can to make sure that's right. Um, so then I became a, um, a tire buster during the tire recall uh, for Firestone. And that sucks. I hate tires. I still hate them to this day. I hate the smell of them. I hate, I just hate them in general. 
I have busted probably like, you know, 40 or 50,000 tires in my lifetime. Um, after that, um, I was going to work, uh, getting ready to go to work. I was working two jobs. I worked at Firestone and Hollywood Video. People that are my age and your age are now dating themselves. They're like, hey, you know, put one hand up if you've ever rented a video before and it was a VHS. Blockbuster. You, know? you had to worry if yep. it was VHS or beta, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And then uh, I was getting ready for work. My my daughter was like five months old. Mm, no, she was nine months old. Sorry. Um, so she was born in January. Yeah, so she's nine months old. Had no intention of serving in the military at all whatsoever. And uh, phone's ringing off the hook. I'm getting out of the shower. Uh, my daughter's screaming. My wife's just doing whatever the hell she was doing. Um, and I'm getting ready for work. And I walk out and she turned on the TV. When she turned on the TV, that's right when the, I mean, story over story, right? Second, that's right when the second, the, the second plane hit, televised everywhere. And I went to work and I was just like, that's not, that's not real. Like the whole time, like, that's not real. Whatever. So get to work. Nobody comes to work. Nobody's, there's no, nothing happening. We sit around and we just watch the news all day. And, um, you know, I'm sitting there and, and my old boss was a, uh, he's a bronze star recipient for Panama or Grenada or whatever. One of them that would, so somebody got a war of bronze star for actual combat. So, um, and uh, he said they're talking to me about like how he wishes he could go serve and everything else like that. And I had no inclination of serving because I was like, eh, you know, I got a, I got a kid. Like if I serve, then I don't get to raise my child. And I, I was kind of selfish at the time. And like hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? Uh, and then I went home and I just held my daughter that night and I woke up the next day and I didn't go to work, I called in sick and I went to the recruiting office. No, I went to the recruiting office to learn how to fight because I was an 18 year old kid who'd never been in a fight before. And if they could do that in New York, the city of cities, they could do it anywhere. And I was going to be damned if my kid, if I wasn't going to be a man enough to be able to fight for my kid, like put up a fight, I might die, but at least I died doing, you know, battling and not just squirming in a hole somewhere. Uh, so I walked in very first thing, you know, everybody wants to, they want to fly jets and they want to do all this shit. So I walked into the air force recruiting office and I was like, how long till I can be in, a, in combat and learn how to fight? And they're like, you're not, do you have a bachelor's degree? I was like, no, Eight, I mean, 19 years old now. And uh, they were like, oh, well, officers here in the air force, are the ones that fight, they're the ones who fly unless you want to be an MP. And I was like, ah, that doesn't sound sound fun at all i don't want nothing to do with that <laughs> this was before like jtac was a thing and all that stuff then <clears throat> i walked next door to the navy and the navy recruiter's like do you want to be a navy seal i was like no i'm not that hard <laughs> that didn't what? appeal to you whatsoever listen there's a thing that we all know about ourselves right like you know intrinsically right you know that at this age i have this much mental fortitude and maybe this much uh, testicular fortitude if you will like i can do a lot but my mental my mental ability to be able to handle mind games was like nil right is that their line to get you into the navy is you want to be a navy seal uh i don't know i'm just gonna leave it be (laughs) so you're Uh, 0 for 2 so i'm 0 for 2 so then i'm like I'm, i'm like dude okay well all right let's go talk to the army so i'm like I walk in. I'm like, all right. So listen, I've been to two recruiting offices. You're all next to each other. You've seen me walking up and down. Before you cut to the chase, how long till I can be in a fight? 
how long can I be in the fight? And uh, the recruiter looks at me, he's like 18 months. And I'm like, you know, a child of the uh, 80s and 90s. I'm like, you know, Kuwait happened in three days. Like, I don't really want to enlist to just practice shit in the woods. I want to enlist to go fight to, so I can learn how to fight to protect my family. And I, I don't really care about anything else. Um, and he's like, well, 18 months and I'll put you on a, a guaranteed ch- shot at Ranger, at the, a Ranger contract. And I was like, cool, hold on. I have one more branch to go talk to. And, and he's like, where are you going? I was like, the Marines. And so he's like, okay, whatever. So I go leave there and I go and I walk in the Marine Corps recruiting office and I was like, Hey, uh, how long till I can be in a fight? And the Marine recruiter looked at me at the time, Staff Sergeant Pineda, we're still friends. And that's weird for some people to hear that I'm still friends with a recruiter, but I didn't let my recruiters lie to me, as they always say. I was a recruiter once as well. But he was like, well, let's take your ASVAB. So I, I was like, all right, cool. So we went down immediately to MEPS, took my ASVAB, and I scored like off the charts. He's like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, let me, re- re- let me reiterate it to you. I want to fight. And he's like, you don't want to do military intel? I was like, no, I don't want to do that. And he's like, do you want to do like truck drive it, like to be a, a mechanic or aircraft mechanic or anything like that? I'm like, no, man, I just want to fight. I don't really care about anything else. I just want to learn how to fight. And then he went down the spiel about like Marine combat training, how every Marine's a rifleman. It was a lie. Some Marine or Marines are riflemen and most of us are machine gunners. You know, we, we can put accurate, we can put rounds down range. It doesn't mean they're very accurate, right? Um, so then I, I was like, look, I just want to be, I just want to be an infantryman. And he's like, well, the only way you can do that is by going reserve at first. I'm like, oh, shit. Okay, fine. Let's talk about it. So I, I took the ASVAB, everything else went home. And then I came back and like the, the later on that night or the next day, I don't know, kind of fuzzy timelines. But um, I came back and I was like, listen, after talking to a bunch of my friends that are currently in the military and they're all being told they're going to be activated, you know, in the next nine months. So timeline wise. I got to get through boot camp, got to get through school of infantry, and then I can go to war and I can learn how to fight from a kid. Not very patriotic. I just wanted to take care of my kid. And so then I went to boot camp. So I enlisted actually on my birthday, October 12th of 2001, officially enlisted, you know, raise my hand and all that stuff, go through the duck walk and all that weird shit they do in MEPS. And uh, I end up um, going to boot camp on January 14th-ish somewhere in there um of 2002 and i was like i'm gonna miss the fight like this is ridiculous like i'm gonna miss going i'm gonna whatever so we get to boot camp and they're like you know they i go through a whole boot camp thing and i come out i went in at 145 pounds i came out 185 because i did a lot of or because of the muscle uh i i smile a lot and i'm a smart ass and um i'm an easy target (laughs) So I did a lot of mountain climbers and a lot of push-ups for dumb shit that I did. And, you know, boot camp stories are always the same. It's always, you know, somebody getting smoked and then you get smoked because you're laughing or smiling. You think you're sly, whatever. But I came out, um, you know, uh, 185 pounds of twisted steel and sex appeal, as they say. Of course. Right. And uh, went to the school of infantry, came home, checked in my unit, orders immediately to do a, a workup to go to Iraq. Can I stop you right there? Yeah, go ahead. All right. I want to go back a little bit and ask you a few questions. 
how many children are there in your family there? Is there just you and a brother, did you say? Yeah. Uh, so um, later on, I found out that I have a bunch of half brothers and sisters. But growing up, you were aware of you and a brother. Me and my little brother, yeah. Okay. Now, you were eight years old when your dad remarried. Um, Is that correct? Seven years, seven years old when my dad uh, remarried and eight years old when I was adopted by my mom. Okay. All right. Your dad was working all of these jobs. Mm-hmm. Was your mom around a lot? Because I think you mentioned something about how, did you have to grow up real quick? Were you doing a lot of things around the house because your dad wasn't there? What were you doing? And did you ever feel like you were forced to grow up a little bit too quick? So I still had to go see, uh, I'm going to refer to her as my egg dumpster. This is what it is. So um, I still had to go see her with my little brother. Uh, and she would invite drug dealers over to the house while we were there and she would exchange sex for drugs. Did your dad know this was going on? No. You didn't say anything. Why? I wasn't paying attention. I was eight, you know? Okay. So you didn't know what was going on. You didn't know this. You didn't realize what was going on until later. Yeah. So she would go into the bedroom for like hours and hours and hours and hours, whatever the hell they were doing. Not my problem. So, but there was, I had to make food for me and my little brother. So I learned how to make mayonnaise and cheese sandwiches at the age of eight. It's terrible. Super terrible. That's all she ever had. Peanut butter and jelly. And, you know, I learned how to bake. Um, and then, you know, we do, I would do odds and ends for the neighbors in the apartment complex that was, we would stay in. I'd go like take out garbage and make like five bucks and we'd walk over and I'd get like a can of peaches and some flour and I'd make like cobbler for me and my little brother. Because feeding uh, you was not a top priority. No, you know, it's just how it is with, with, with people who are addicted to drugs. They don't really, you know, I don't, I don't have any sympathy for her, but also like, I also understand that there's a mindset that she has, she had at the time. And how long did you go and stay with her? Was that all through your teenage years or did it stop at some point? So she actually bailed on me and my little brother when I was like 12. She fled the state because there were some some drug dealers put a hit out on her. Like a legit hit. Like, I was like, what? <laughs> you know, and obviously at the time I had like a co-parenting thing going on with my mom and dad and, and her and whatnot. And, you know, it, it sucked because you feel abandoned, right? You feel like you're worthless and like this person who made me doesn't care, you know? How has that had- affected you? In your adult oh. life, or has it? I'm sure it has. Oh, yeah. You know, there's, I always feel like I have imposter syndrome. I always feel like I'm not good enough, no matter how much I work or how much I do, no matter because how much anybody loves me. You weren't good enough for your biological mom. So, how could you be good enough for anyone? Yeah, probably something like that. Yeah. That's really sad. Um, yeah, it, it's sad, but it's made me who I am. So, you know, I am. Um, I know a lot of people out there focus on like the reasons why they can't do things, but I've experienced enough loss and enough heartache in my life that I no longer look at the negative side because the thing about life is, is life is always going to be hard. No matter what, you're going to have hard moments that are tragic to you. They're going to be catastrophic to you and they're not catastrophic to the world. They're not catastrophic to anybody but you. So when life gets hard, you've got to get harder than life. 
So you could either go about it the negative way and you could just hate everybody, or you could just go about it like, well, today sucked. You know, it's a bad day. Tomorrow, you can't have, if you have a bad day, you can't have two bad days. If you have two bad days, you can't have a bad week. If you have a bad week, you can't have a bad month. And if you have a bad month, you can't have a bad year. And if you have a bad year, then look at yourself and figure out what the hell you're doing and fix that shit. I found it really interesting, but not surprising when you mentioned that September 11th was what really caused you to pivot towards the military and serving. I think that I could honestly, JT, take all the men and women who have said that and compile it into an hour long episode of them just talking about that day where they knew they had to go and protect their loved ones. And I also find it interesting because this, you were talking about how I could never be a Navy SEAL. When you're talking about, I just want to go and fight. I want to protect those. And this is the way that I know how to do it. I find that astounding because for me, I would be absolutely terrified. Did you have that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Anybody says that they went to war and they're fucking stoked. They're they're lying to you, straight faced, cold liars. Nope. You know, I um I left three days after my second daughter was born to go to Iraq to invade to be part of the invasion. Um, and every single part of me, no matter how much I trained, was terrified. But here's the here's the thing, right? So, um, I learned very young that. Courage is not something that you're gifted. You don't just, you're not naturally courageous, right? It takes your brain six seconds to make a decision from the time a thought comes into your head to acting. Once you get past those six seconds, if you can put your body in motion, you've already made the decision. Your brain can't think about it anymore, right? Um, And I learned that really young. So when it came time to do anything, I never thought about it. I just did it. Like they're like, hey, you know, we're we're doing repelling, Australian style repelling, and I used to be terrified of heights, like so terrified of heights. And when you get up to the top, you could either sit there and think about it, or you just do it. And if you sit there and think about it, you're never gonna do it. So I just did it. I just always did it. And um, and that's really kind of how I just lived. I'm not courageous. I am not courageous. I'm just too stupid to fail permanently. I fail all the time, but I'm just never going to give up. And so many of you too, it's not enough to be part of the team. You want to be fighting. Yes. So many of you've told me, I want to be in the infantry. I want to, I'm like, oh my gosh, not me. Like put me the farthest away that you can from the action. I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to see anything. And yet there's something inside of you that you need to be there on the front lines per se, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that fascinates me because that just seems such a nightmare. My, my big thing still is always, and always has been that my driving factor is my children. Um, you know, there's a lot of things in the world, good and bad that I am. And I, but my thing that I always want to be is I want to be a dad that's half the dad my dad is. So um, I had a, a moment you know, in my life where I had a choice where I could learn how to fight and protect my, my kids, my daughter at the time, or I could not. And, you know, if I'm going to be away, 
then I'm going to give everything so that she has the path for success in life. So if that is, unfortunately, the loss of my life, then, and I'm fighting for her ability to be free and make choices, and, you know, she sees that and that story is told to her forever and ever, then that is just what it is. That is imparting on my child an innate ability to be better than I was. It gives her the freedom to make choices and she's going to fail along the way. And they all, we all do. And she, but if you, if you have somebody who did that for you, it's twofold, right? You have the ability to do make choices, but then also you have a legacy that you need to follow and not the military legacy, just the successful, I'm going to be better. Nothing's going to keep me down legacy. You're going to Iraq. That was your first deployment, correct? Yeah. You're not flying to Nevada. You're not flying to France. You're flying into Iraq, which I cannot think of many more foreign countries than that. You know, as far as the lifestyle is so different than the West. Yep. Was there anything when you got there that really shocked you or like, whoa, I am not in Utah anymore. This is weird. When the, uh, so we were, we were on a C5. Uh, so I was an LAV crewman, 0313 LAV crewman, and 0311 straight leg infantryman, right? Uh, but I was a driver um, at the time. And so they lowered the C5 door, right? And I'm in my vehicle. Everything's all nice and AC'd. We've been, like, traveling for, like, seven, eight days. We had our C5 broke down, like, three different countries. And it's just whatever, right? Um, in typical C5, uh, C5 fashion. Uh, but they lowered the 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 tailgate or whatever it is right and i'm sitting there and it literally felt like somebody turned on every like hair dryer in the entire country and blew them at me the gates of hell yeah absolutely it's just like it drops down i'm first vehicle in line getting ready to drive, you know, their ground guide me off. So I'm all popped up. I don't, you know, I'm just expecting it to be warm or whatever. I'm like, oh, I'm from Utah. It's a desert. It's not a desert. Not it's a the desert. high desert here. You have to remember that. There's a yeah. <laughs> so we, so people don't know this, but Kuwait is not only hot, but it's humid. Oh, that's double. Oh, that's so double. A, I think when they dropped the gate, it was 135 degrees. Was that with the humidity or without? That was 135 degrees temperature. Oh, gosh. Plus, plus humidity. I don't even oh. know what humidity was. So it was like and 300 degrees? It, it might as well have been, you know. I was like, that's when I knew. I was like, ah, shit. This is real. We're I not didn't doing think something. through this. Maybe I, this is a mistake. Do they have a cooler place that I can fight? Can we, like, you know, go somewhere where it's Alaska is fighting over there? <laughs> Oh, like, what if I just fight in San Diego? It's like 75 all the time, you know? Like, Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine that. Well, so that's the first thing. And then you leave, you know, back then we, we just left Kuwait national or international airport and we're driving down the road and every single car is a BMW or, or it's a, a Mercedes or a Land Rover. So many freaking Lamborghinis have been in and out because the Kuwait, Kuwaitis are all stupid rich with oil money. And you're driving down the road and you look to the left and the right and there's just camels running and hanging out. And you're like, what the hell? where am I? Like, it felt like I was 
and it's like this really crazy weird orange red color the sand is I and mean, i can't even explain it right um but you're just driving you're like am i on mars like is this what mars looks like you're like zero trees some weird like alien looking shit over here you know cars that i could never dream of even like touching just passing me by where where the hell am i at and what about the plight of the people there because here in the u.s it makes me very angry that people, for lack of a better term, bitch and moan about how awful it is here, how oppressed they are here. Tell us what kind of lives those people had in Iraq. Okay, so um, I'm a 19-year-old dad, and the very first village that we come to uh, like a week or two weeks before we got there, Saddam had sent the uh, Fedayeen soldiers, his his elite guard, in, and they took anybody that was over the age of eight, and they killed all the parents, and they took everybody else to um, whatever internment camp you want to call it. I don't know what the hell they call it. And um, it was this village full of nothing but little girls and littler girls and little boys running around. And that was Iraq. Like, uh, you had, like, overall, Iraq was, so this is, make sure we know, like, there's, there's a difference between invasion Iraq and then everything else everybody did, right? Invasion Iraq was like the wild, wild west. Um, so you, we would roll into a town. So, like, for instance, we went, we, we rolled through Al Kut, and, like, people were, like, waving white flags. It felt like welcoming us into their country. They were super happy their little kids are dickheads shit they would steal all your shit but they're little kids you know that's how they know a lot of them spoke english um a lot of the gentle like the men that i spoke to um had been to cambridge and they had been to like all of these places there's so many like engineers it's like i was like this is the mecca of engineers like pun intended i guess but like you know there's so many really smart people and then like the the diversity between those that knew stuff and then those that followed a religious belief that didn't know anything right it was so vast that gap was huge so you people would come up to you and they would talk to you and they would say things like you know no alibaba saddam under the foot and they'd spit on the ground they'd step on it you know and all that stuff and their little kids would try to steal anything that they could because you know that's you know that culture and you never see women ever not one time. I during the invasion, I don't think I saw any females. I might have seen. I might have. I might have seen ankles. I might have seen some ankles, but I never saw. Like they wouldn't let them out. Like they'd keep them in the courtyards. Like they. I mean, that just is what they did, you know. Um, so it was very strange, and the people there, like, you know, we took away their power. Um, but this at the same time, this entire populace was literally bathing in like the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, which are literally ridden with fecal matter, like, like terrible. And they're just out there showering and you're just like, what, where am I? And uh, like, there were, it was, they were super poverty stricken on the outskirts um, everywhere from it there. So we ran um, up and down the Iranian border for a long time. Um, but uh, you know, when we were in the battles, like when we were in Al-Nazari, um, yeah, like that, there was no women there were like these people were freaking walking around poverty stricken and like 
you know, trash and sewage in the, in the streets. They didn't care. They were just trying to make it. And, uh, any of the, uh, the border towns and whatnot, they, they were all, every single one of them was, was practiced. They like Saddam practiced mustard gas on them. Like he just did that, you know, um, just to show the Iranians or whoever that, you know, you come across here, this is what happens to you. Or, I, I mean, terrible, ruthless. And the people have been in a violent state for ever. So they don't understand kindness. They don't get it. Um, and we were just the latest conquerors to try to come through. Take us through your deployments, will you please? Yeah, so I did uh, a deployment to Iraq um, during the invasion. And then I, I had the deployment, I mean, combat deployments. <clears throat> Actually, the things that, that I did, I've only done two combat deployments. Um, then I served eight years in the Corps, got out, decided I'd had my fill of crayons. <clears throat> <laughs> they didn't taste so good anymore? Uh, well, it was it was just a bureaucracy of trying to get the next crayon. It was the problem. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, I joined the Army National Guard about six months after I got out. I just missed the camaraderie. I didn't miss anything else. And I was like, oh, it's the Army National Guard. No big deal. We're going to, like, go help, like, flood victims or something in America. Wrong. So they're like, hey, you know, uh, if you're the recruiter, was like, well, if you join, like, you know, if you want to retrain and go, like, learn how to do things, you can go be, like, a, you know, a vertical engineer and build buildings or you can this this whole this whole military intelligence thing comes up again like it's ridiculous. Um, they're like you can be military intel. I'm like how about like no. If I want to build stuff, I'll just go be a carpenter in the civilian world. I don't really. I'm gonna get paid like ten times more than you're gonna pay me. So how about no? They're like well, you know, have you ever thought about being a combat engineer? And I was like, sure. Tell me about their mission because I you know after you've been in, you understand like each each like. MOS has its own mission that they're supposed yeah. to do. So they break it down. They're like, well, you know, we have, we have basically two main missions that we run. So we do, you know, combat engineer work, which you've seen firsthand. Totally cool. I love blowing things up. Super fun. And then the other part is, is we go in and if there's like a, the Army and National Guard in Utah had a, a HERF mission was like Homeland Response Force. So basically if there was like any, any buildings that were collapsed, we would go in and we'd, we'd help uh, search and rescue, shore up things so people could move in and move out. That was like really important to me um but so i was like oh, i'll just do that how long is the training they're like two weeks i'm like two weeks to learn to blow shit up i'm in <laughs> so in you all want to blow things up yeah it's i mean it's a thing um, how much more testosterone do you need for that huh <laughs> uh well yeah it's more like uh it's more like a, a pucker factor it's an adrenaline rush it's not really <laughs> it's just like ah <laughs> so uh i enlist and find out like two months like my second drill i don't even have a uniform yet because like um i'm waiting to go to combat engineer school they don't have any uniforms to issue to me because i'm coming from the marine corps so i don't have to go to like basic training or anything like that and so i'm waiting on a uniform oh and then i show up to drill and they're like all right we got a uniform for you you're gonna have to wear shoe like like regular tennis shoes so i was like i'm just not gonna wear my uniform i'm not gonna walk around in a uniform with tennis shoes because i'm not broken that's not what i'm gonna do um, and we get to final formation, uh, and they're like, great news guys. I was like, oh, fuck. Whenever anybody says great news in the military, it's like, what, what are you going to do? 
we're going to Afghanistan. We got letters. Uh, excuse me, pardon me. Can you say it a little bit louder for the slow kids in the back? Because, like, I I thought that we joined the National Guard, right? And then they're like, you know, they were everybody's like cheering and excited. And I was like, already combat vet. I'd already never done one. that. I'm like, that shit's not fun, man. First time a bullet snaps crap past your head, fuck that. I'm out. But, you know, I, I was, I, I made a commitment. So um, I was like, all right, cool. I guess we probably should get me a uniform so I can actually start trading. And then, you know, it just kind of went from there. We went to Afghanistan, did route clearance. And uh, the unit that I served with was the most decorated um, Army National Guard unit in Utah. Or, well, ever in Utah. Um, yeah. Well, having, having already done this, does that make it so that you have more apprehension or less apprehension because you know the drill, so to speak? Um, I can't speak for everybody, but this is the way I looked at it, right? So as soon as you accept death in your life, then you guys are just homies. So you just kind of, okay, well, I'm like, fuck, right? Like, and then they're like, we're doing route clearance. So I was like, wait, define route clearance. And they're like, well, you're going to drive down the road looking for bombs. Okay, that's what I thought. And do you and have like, to take out the bombs or do you just report it and someone comes and gets the IEDs? Oh, no, no, we're the interrogation crew. So, okay. So you, in every route clearance, like, um, I guess, platoon, you have, um, like, ground-penetrating radar vehicles that go look for things. And then you have a buffalo, which is got this arm that comes out and just digs and interrogates. And they will pull up the bomb and whatever. Um, and it's designed to take blasts and stuff like that. However, you don't really know what that tension's like. You don't know the level of stress. You don't know the level of adrenaline. You do know what it's like to be shot at. You do know what it's like to be an ambush. You do know what it's like to kick indoors for no fucking reason at all whatsoever and get shot at again. You have that. So you have this idea of what you possibly are going to experience. Plus, also, you know what an RPG looks like when it hits the side of a vehicle or in my case um what it sounds like when the air national guard from pennsylvania lights up an entire column of marines one street over as you're pushing through on Nazari. okay so, so what's play- that now wait you can't just skip over that what is that uh during the invasion into uh, iraq um we were all fighting in on it was the battle of the bridges right and we were like the center bridge we were part of the middle push so it was like AAV, LAV, AAV, LAV, right? And then you had your scouts pushed out and everybody's walking. We were all, we were engaging like four days or three days straight. We were battling for an entire city. Well, the Pennsylvania Air National Guard had two pilots that were, we called for fire. Well, we didn't, another company did, called for fire. And when they came in on their strafing run in their A-10s, they took out an entire column of Marines. Friendly fires, bullshit. Like when you say take out, were they all killed? Um, I don't know if they were all killed, but a lot of them were. Yeah. Isn't, I mean, war is sad enough as it is, but the friendly fire mm-hmm. thing. It's the fog of war. Ugh. They talk about it, unless you've been there, you don't really know what it is. But um, basically, <clears throat> there's so many moving parts that are happening all the time. And <clears throat> your communication level can't keep up with the amount of information that's coming up. I'm not giving them a pass because they're idiots and they should know better. Um, 
but that's the fog of war. It happens. You know, Pat Tillman, fog of war. That's yep. what that I was is. about to mention him. Hmm. It's devastating. So, yeah, it really sucks when you lose a friend, and it sucks even more when your friends were killed by friends. You know? Well, that but, was going to be my next question. So I will ask that now. Did okay. you have any close calls? Did you lose friends? So, and what are the monsters that you bring back when you're done? All right. So I, I have lost friends. Um, they came home with the war and they didn't make it home or they made it home, but they didn't make right. it home. Right. We all have that story. Everybody has that story. Right. It's nothing new. Um, I lost the very first person that ever welcomed me into the Sapper Company in Salt Lake, um, the National Guard unit. His name is Stockboat, James Stockboat. Um, he was out and he was on, he was a scout pushed out when we were doing clearance. He picked up a, picked up a, what he thought was a remote debt layer, not a remote debt, but a command pole to cut it. And when he picked it up, he became not alive. And for me, that was my first day back from leave. So I'd been there for like eight months, six months, somewhere, somewhere in there. And I just barely got back. And um, me and my buddy, Somsock, we were the only two that were left back because we got there late and we we couldn't go on mission. So we had to stay behind. And we had to put his pillow and his Kevlar, the half of his Kevlar on, on the, uh, the helicopter and walk him there. So that, that sucked. It sucked way bad. Um, so, I, you, know, I, you know, I lost friends from both. And the demons, man, they're dicks. You bring home all sorts of demons. So you bring home this crazy anxiety monster um, because when you're there, like you have a goal, you have a drive, you have a, a plan, your day is planned out. You have like this process, right? And then you come home and you don't have anything like that. You don't have a goal, you don't have a drive. If you're transitioning out of the military, I left the military and I was a sergeant and I was in charge of a, you know, $250,000 worth of gear, a million and a half dollar vehicle and nine lives. I came home and they're like, do you want to be an assistant manager making $15 an hour at Walmart? No, bitch. I don't actually want to do that. You don't have any qualifications though. Oh, leadership's not a qualification? Nah, nah. We don't need that. We got managers. I spoke to someone about that. His name is Carmelo <laughs> Rodriguez. And he said what makes it really hard is that you almost have this G.I. Joe complex. You're doing these great things. You're saving the world, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you get home. And like you said, you're working at Mickey D's. No yeah, one I mean, will I, hire you. How do you handle that? Uh, it takes resilience. That's all it is. Um, and like we're all taught it. This, this is a big thing for me. Like, this is something that sits in my craw all the time. Like, I hear all these veterans and such that they they are so focused on the negative that they almost develop a victim mentality, mm. right? And it's unfortunate. And I'm not picking fun and I'm not, you know, because everybody's got demons and they got, some people got shit that you can never come back from, right? And I'm not trying to make fun of that. So I'm going to use my word, choose my words very carefully um, in the fact that when people focus on the negative, they turn into bitches. You bitch out. It's not like your fault that you bitch out, but you bitch out. You bitch out in life. Everybody has a way to get help. And if you don't have a way to get help, you know somebody who can help you get help. 
I mean, I came home with uh, TBI and and uh, uh, P and PTSD. How'd you get the and, TBI? Uh, I had a bomb go off right next to me. It's pretty cool. But no physical injuries. No, I just I'm just just your brains rattled. Yeah, I'm just not out there. <laughs> wow. Okay. And you know, I had a moment. So when I found, when I realized I had PTSD, I was at Hogle Zoo with my second ex-wife. I have an ex-wife for each branch of service, so I'm just kind of keeping the trend. I gotta I gotta hit that statistic, you know. You gotta keep um, them even. Yeah. So uh, I um, we were heading home, and this dude cut me off, and I was in a van, and my my kids and her kids in the van. I had three kids. She had three kids, and then he put me off. Like he purposely cut me off, like. And I was like, this motherfucker, right? Immediate. So what do I do? Because I did the sensible thing on I-80. I sped up and I, put, I ran him off the road. And then I got out of my car, my van, and they opened up the back. And I reached in to grab a tire iron to go fight this giant man that pissed me off. And the only thing that stopped me was my three little girls. And they were crying. And I closed the van and the dude was ready to fight. And I looked at him. I'm like, I'm wrong. I apologize. I hope you're safe. I got back in the van and I drove away. Um, not because the dude was bigger than me. I had a tire and a tire. And I, didn't, I don't really care. I have rage with this point. Like there's, there's no common sense happening. It was, it was just my, my kid's face bringing me back to reality. Then I went to the VA intake, intake clinic, right? So I'm, at this time, I'm working as a headhunter doing re recruiting stuff in my life. And um, I go to the VA and the VA is like, oh yeah, like you have severe PTSD. And I was like, I don't have severe PTSD. I can function. I'm fine. And they're like, do you ever get mad for no reason? I'm like, yeah, this is pissing me off right now. <laughs> you know, this whole thing. <laughs> anyway, um, and this is actually where I just started to develop the, me the mentality that I have now. So they said, like, you have PTSD. And this is before, like, PTSD was widely widely accepted. This is just barely starting to, you know, like, we moved from the thousand-yard stare to PTSD. And um, I went into this crazy depression. Like, I'm not man enough. I'm not good enough. Like, I can't I can't mentally work through something. I'm, I'm a smart guy. I can't work through this. I can't figure my way out. So then I started going to these therapy sessions, and they, I did cognitive rehab, which sucks. It's, it's amazing when you're done, but in the middle, it's garbage. You have to rehash everything that you've gone through and you have to talk about the death and like the limbs that you've seen and all, all of those dumb shit. Um, but I was going deeper and deeper into this depression. So they were like, hey, you need to see a psychiatrist. And I was like, okay. So they started prescribing pills. Started off with like Prozac and then I went on like something else and then I was on Wellbutrin and I couldn't figure out what was going to work with my brain. And they were like, well, we think we're going to prescribe you some lithium. I remember clear to this day because i was so just shocked like what the fuck did you just say to me and then psychiatrist was like let's try getting you on some lithium and i was like you mean the shit they put in batteries and she's like yeah and i'm like do i look like a pink fucking bunny rabbit to you <laughs> no i was like how about we do some holistic shit i'm like how about don't prescribe me another damn thing like i'm not gonna go seeking drugs i don't even like like when I was on Prozac, I felt like I wasn't me. Like I was just sitting there numb to the world. And I was like, this is the shittiest way to live my life. Like I don't, I stopped taking it like after like six weeks. Uh, no, 
this ain't working. And then Will Butrin was fucking, yeah, nope. I was just like, no, man, I'm not doing your drugs. I don't, I don't want to be part of that. So then they were like, hey, we have a Habodi sweat lodge every Thursday, every other Thursday up here at the VA. Really? Like, yeah. No, the one felt like is every other Thursday, like 7 p.m. or something like that. Anyway, um, not stoned, never done, hadn't done drugs yet or anything like that in my entire life. So I'm like not really quite sure to what, what to expect. So I bring like Gatorade. I'm like drinking water the night before, thinking it was enough. There is not enough water in the world to drink. So I went in there and like I get through two sessions. So there's four sessions of the total, right? And you start chanting and all this cool shit happens and like they, they douse the fire. And you're literally, you can't see your hand in front of your face, but you're literally watching shit walk across the walls. And then you're like on a spirit journey. And it's totally, it's a mind fuck for real. Um, I left and I was like, meh, I'm, I'm good. Like when I was sitting there, I sat up, they give you a break in the middle. And I sat up or stood up and I was wearing basketball shorts. And all of the sweat from my body pooled at the bottom of my uh, shorts and just completely sploosh out below. And I was like, oh, my water broke. That's cool. <laughs> Um, so I was like, I like that. That was cool. Um, and then I started struggling with some stuff still. And I was just battling with her divorce. And yeah, I'm going to uh, stop you again. Yeah, I'm going to stop yeah. you again because I want to go back. All right. Okay. Just to get it clear, how many years were you in the Marines? How many years were you in the guard? Mm-hmm. How many deployments total were there? And did, why did you get out? Let's start there. Uh, all right. So I did eight years in the Corps, one deployment in the Corps during the invasion. Um, six years in the Guard, one deployment to Afghanistan. Uh, I did a MU. Um, went to, I did a UDP in the Marine Corps. I um, did Operation RIMPAC, which is as stupid as it sounds. <laughs> uh, practicing, uh, practicing that's uh, fucking dumb. Um, practicing invasion, just in case we hit Korea, that's over in Hawaii, the entire Pacific fleet does it and it's dumb, super fucking dumb. Um, and let's see here. So with those two questions, what was the third one? So oh, you, you just decided I'm out? done. My enlistment's over. I'm done. No, um, I was in a re-enlist. Um, I was on a promotion list. So I would have been promoted. Uh, but, uh, they were like, so I, when I, when I was, when I was hit, I actually got um, C3, my C3, C4 spine, my T, T7 or T8 spine. Um, they weren't compressed, like, like you know, hernia or anything like that, but they, uh, they're aged, I guess. I don't, I don't know the proper term, but basically they're like, hey, you got neck, back problems, and uh, your C3 and C4 spine look like they're 70 years old. Like, and was this oh. from an IED then? Is that what happened? Yeah. Okay. Well, an IED and then also, you know. Nobody has back pain until they, you know, from the military at all, because we've never rocked a mile in our, in our life. <laughs> right? Not a thing. Okay. They gave me a, a permanent line of duty. Okay. And they were like, they were like, hey, you can, you can stay in the military, but you're going to have to like do supply or you're going to have to do admin. And by the way, no knocking on those guys, but that ain't Somebody has to do it. Yeah. Not, I ain't in my cup of tea. I didn't, if I want to do paperwork, I'll do a job outside the military that yeah. pays me to do paperwork. Yeah. Okay. When you think about your PTSD, and it's funny too, I don't know, 
I have a lot of veterans that don't like me to call it PTSD. They just like to call it PTS, whatever. But when you think of your PTSD, and there's so many things, but is there anything specific that you can really attribute that to? Is it the whole experience? Is it what you saw? Where does that come from for you? You know, honestly, I never had a problem with shooting at people. I never had a problem blowing up doors and kicking and shit. I never had a problem with engaging anybody. I didn't care. I, I looked at it like, you guys you guys fucked with the bull and now you're getting the horns. I don't really care. It's your own fucking problem, right? Um, so I never had a problem with that. Um, for a while, I thought it was survivor's guilt. I don't think it's survivor's guilt. My version of PTSD, I think, comes from my entire, both of my entire deployments, I was outside the wire. So my adrenaline was just here and never came down. Um, I don't like fireworks after being blown up. It's not really a great thing. I, I mean, I can see them and I'm okay, right? But I'm not going to, I'm going to shell shock mode or anything like that. But um, I think it's just an overall culmination. Like when you have to put like somebody you revere and respect his corpse on a helicopter like and you're carrying it out and you're like there's no way this is a body and then you have to sit there and focus on your next mission and then you get blown up or your friends get blown up i, I think probably the thing for me is when my friends got blown up uh, one of my good friends his, his name is josie he got hit we were doing a route clearance mission down uh, a route called virginia and like we were like tight, we were still tight. Um, but he was driving down down in front of us. So I was two vehicles behind him, and I was a gunner. And he gets hit, and the the husky, and no comms, no comms, no comms. Like it felt like an eternity. It could have been. It probably was like two minutes, but it was forever, and ever and ever and ever. We start taking fire. Complex attack. Um, we start returning fire, start shooting at the bad guys and whatnot. I'm still trying. All I'm thinking about is just like shooting the bad guy so I can get to my buddy. That's all I care about. I'm not even in charge. I'm like, I'm not in charge of anything right now. I'm just shooting bad guys, shooting at bad guys so I can make sure my buddy's okay. He finally comes on the comms and he's talking and you can tell that this is all just an automated response. Like he's talking to us telling us it was his current sit rep and he goes break and just keeps talking. Like he never breaks. He never lets go of the combine. And like there's tire, there's two tires this way. There's, you know, they're designed to, to blow and a, a blow up. And so that way, whatever. And um, I think that's probably the shit that bugged me the most. And I think that carried came home with me um, that and, and, and just like, just the elevated stress forever. You know. When you're in the military and you're in these situations, and I know that, you know, they just program you muscle reaction, muscle reaction, mm -hmm. but there's no time to deal with it mentally. No. And so you just suppress it, suppress it, suppress it, suppress it. And there's no way to deal with it. You don't have the time until you get back. And then does it all just come flooding out because you have time then? I don't, so I don't know. Cause like I was good for like a year 
maybe two when I came home. And then I don't know what switched. I don't know what happened. I, I mean, I was grumpy, but I just thought I was like NCO grumpy. I just thought I was a dick to be a dick, you know? Maybe it's just um, building. Yeah, I mean, probably it was. You know, eventually you have a Mount, a Mount St. Helens incident, you know? Uh, for all of those younger listeners, that was a volcano that happened and then blew up an entire side of a mountain. If this is too personal, please tell me, how hard is this on marriages? Oh, this is brutal on marriages. Um, after two branches of service and two marriages, um, one of them was not caused by the military. It's caused by being a young kid. But the other one was caused by the military. Um, I would tell anybody who enlists, don't get married until you're out. Don't Just don't do it. It's not, I mean, you're, that girl or that man or that whatever might be the one that is your forever. And if you're there, um, that forever is gone. I'm super sour towards it. Not because I have a longing for anything, but it's not just me. In the Sapper Company, we had a 95% divorce rate. Oh, wow. So you're back. And things, are they just escalating, escalating? Uh, ebbs and flows. Okay. Basically, like, uh, I hit the point, and I'm going through a divorce, and I realize, like, nothing I'm doing is helping. And I'm in, like, that this poor pity me fucking stage of my life. Super poor pity me stage. 2014-ish, 2013, 2014. So, like, two, two years afterwards. Um. I started my own business at the time called the tire hunter and I, I moved on became a mechanic. Well, I was a master tech anyways, um, in between things. And, um, I started business and was doing okay. Um, and then that, that compounded things. I just kept myself so busy. I was just, I wasn't paying attention to what I needed to do. Me and the ex-wife, uh, we'd been together, married, and then we separated and then we got back together because that totally works. Uh, like things started building, right? It wasn't just me. It was, a, it was a lot around me. And, you know, we had the grand opening for the shop that I bought and we moved into and she didn't show up. She's like, Oh, I have a headache, you know, whatever. And, uh, it got to the point where I was working like 80 hours a week and I was just staying at the, like my, my home life was toxic. And, uh, I was just staying at the shop and my mom, my kids would come to visit me. That, by the way, um, in between, um, well, while I was in Afghanistan, my ex-wife took my kids and moved to Yuma, Arizona. Her husband was a Marine. He was actually a Marine recruiter that used to be a friend of mine. And we don't need to go into that. But uh, so I lost my kids along the way. So I couldn't see them every week. I couldn't, you know, be part of their lives. Uh, and, you know, I'm not moving to Yuma, Arizona. Much love to anybody who's down there, but that ain't. That ain't my cup of tea. If I, I, I literally hated Iraq. I cannot even imagine how hot Yuma is as well. So um, I wasn't going to chase my kids because, I one, I didn't have a support structure down there. And I sure as hell ain't going to follow my ex-wife, but I'm going to make sure I can see my kids. Like, there's, you have to make those choices. And so that built as well. So I'm done with my kids full time, going through this divorce. It just sucks. And it just kept building and building and building. All right. We're coming to the holiday season of 2015. 
Yeah. That wasn't such a great holiday season for you. No, it was, it was quite horrible. I had jumped from one, one relationship to another relationship because that's what grownups do. Um, not all, not all heroes wear capes or something. Um, two out of 10 stars would not recommend. Um, so you rate it that high? Oh, I mean, you gotta, it's gotta be better than not, I guess. At least, okay. You know, at least you're not just going to go be a hoe or something. <laughs> so. If at first um, you don't succeed, right? <laughs> well, yeah, just keep trying. It's fine. Eventually you figure it out. Let's hear. How'd it go? Okay. So I was in this relationship and I was living with this and I had all this trauma. I had all of this trauma. It was horrible, like horrific trauma, right? And I, like, by horrific, I mean, it was not like I experienced, you know, rape or mass murder or anything like that. But it was, like, stuff, like, and this, I think this is a message that I would tell everybody. Like, if you are experiencing this shit, go get help because it's not going to go away on its own, right? You have to. It sucks. And you might think that you're weak from it, but just do it. That's the message that I would say to everybody because I didn't at first. Anyway, so all this trauma is building. Um, my ex-wife, uh, I'm, I'm trying to run the tire hunter. Uh, we're losing money every month. Can't afford to pay bills. I'm trying to figure out how to pay child support. Falling behind every month. Um, get called in the court. Court's like, well, you had all these transactions happened um, on uh, your company credit card. And I'm like, well, yeah, because taking clients out to try to get these body shops to send me stuff, you know, I'm trying to bribe them with booze. And the judge is like, that's not our problem. You have a, res- a responsibility. So they're like, you have three weeks to pay 1900 bucks. Uh, so I was like, all right, cool. Well, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I've got this engine job. I can totally cover it. Not a big deal. And I can probably get myself back on my feet. I get the engine job done and uh, the client pays with a credit card the day before I go to court. So I'm like, well, that's fine. I've got this pending. I can just like communicate this to the judge. Here's the receipts, whatever. So we walk into court and judge fucking throws the book at me and I get put in shackles you for did. 1900, yeah, 1900 bucks. Um, the lowest of lows starts here. Okay. So I get thrown in shackles. I get to spend a night in jail. Funniest night of my life. Not going to lie. Only sober, innocent person, if you will, that's there. <laughs> Not really innocent. You know, I admit my flaws, but I'm going through every single checkpoint as they're searching my butthole and everything else for drugs. Oh, no. Yeah. Didn't need to know that. It might have been TMI for me. <laughs> oh, um, yay. You can cut that if you want. <laughs> you can cut that if you want. Um, but I, uh, I, have to, I have to make fun of the situation. Otherwise, I get, I get a little bit deep. So um, <laughs> You have to. Yeah. So dark humor is kind of my humor. So, um, so I find scenario. that a lot of veterans. It's a, it's the way to cope. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sitting there um, and I'm talking, they're like, well, what are you in for? And I'm like, uh, $1,900 in child support. And they're like, no, you're not. I'm like, eh, maybe 1950. Am I guessing the wrong number here? Like it's under two grand. Um, and every single person is like, Oh shit! Like all these all these male cops are like, oh shit! I gotta go pay my child support. Like I'm behind, and all like these these female cops are all like, oh I'm going after mine. And I was like, oh let's not do a catalyst of this. We don't we don't need to use me as a catalyst for this. I I'm literally here. So they walk me up and down. I get a mug shot and I get all this other shit. And uh, I walk down, and 
this this I, I laughed I still laugh to this day so I'm sitting there and I'm in I'm in like the the, the holding cell kind of jumpsuit looking thing I've got my cool squishy Crocs on and I'm just walking around being guided talking to all these veterans that are part of this because they all work in the fucking jail system and uh, <laughs> this one gal she look over at me and she's like high as a kite stoned out of her mind and she's like hey white boy and I was like what? <laughs> I just confused this shit, right? I'm still trying to figure out what's going on. She's like, are you a ticket? And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, cause you damn fine. I was like, nope, <laughs> I'm in a weird place. Super Get me place. out of here. I'm scared. <laughs> so, so like literally, as I said, you know, um, the engine job cleared. One of my good friends, um, I gave him the, the checkbook for the company and told him to come come get a cashier's check and, and take care of it. At, he also, <clears throat> it ended up being like 2,700 bucks or something like that um, because of jail fees, which I didn't know was a thing. Cause like that makes total sense. Crippled a single dad more. Uh, so I ended up having him hawk like my shotgun and two of my pistols, which, you know, was fine, whatever. It's just a shotgun, just some pistols, stuff my dad gave me, no big deal. I get out and I'm living in an apartment with a girl and I think I'm in love, you know, rebounds and um we start having a kind of falling out i find out that she's texting her ex-boyfriend and like i'm like hey you if, if you want out of this relationship just just say you don't want to be with me that's okay i'm not gonna be happy about it. it's gonna hurt but that's okay like i i'd rather that she's like no no i chose you a month and a half later catch him check, texting each other and sending you know pictures and all sorts of shit so then i have a moment, PTSD moment. And my moments aren't physical. They're all way worse because they're verbal. And there's no filter between my brain and my mouth when I'm mad. So there's shit you have to apologize for when you're done that you didn't remember, you don't know you said. Anyway, I'm not apologizing to her for any of the things that I said because I was literally forced to move out. Of the, uh, she waited for my, my rent check to clear and then told me to leave. My name wasn't on the apartment. So that was cool. And that starts the spiral. Um, so I'm continuing to work. And just to make sure that I can pay my child support, I take a second job at Sierra England, working for one of my good friends who's an army ranger. Um, and uh, I'm sitting there, and I'm going and doing two jobs, and I'm trying to keep up. And as I'm not at the, the shop, the mechanics that we – there's two mechanics that we hired. They start doing, you know, when the – when the was it, when the cat's away, the mice will play. They start doing shit that is just not like any in any kind of ethos that I ever, would ever want. So now I've lost I lost this girl, right? I drive down to get my kids for the weekend um, in, for Thanksgiving. So I only get my kids for four days. There but are two different mothers, right? For my kids? Yes. No, just one. Oh, just one. Okay, good. All right. So I'm driving down to get my kiddos. Um, I'm. And I'm like, you know, struggling a little bit, but I get to see my kids. So I'm like getting all amped up. Got to put on a good dad face. Um, I am staying in the basement apartment or not in basement apartment. I'm staying in a room the size of, I don't know, a large shoebox. Um, and my buddies let me stay. And um, I'm just doing everything I can. I'm moving my trucks or my truck from place to place and hiding it so it doesn't get repossessed. It, like every possible bad thing you can imagine you could do. And that's just what I was doing. Well, then 
um, I take my kids home or well, I, I stay at my mom and dad's house during that time for Thanksgiving. Cause I was just like, ah, told my dad like, Hey, you know, I don't really have a place to stay pseudo homeless kind of couch surfing. Super cool. I'd like to take a shower. It'd be really neat. And my dad's like, yeah, of course you can come up here and stay uh, with the kids, but you can't stay because you got to figure this shit out. I'll figure it out as long as my kids don't have to worry about it. Right. So we stay and I'm like getting ready to go. And I'm like, I always got this anxiety because my ex-wife doesn't make things pleasant to do child exchanges. It's horrible. I'm in this anxiety. I already have anxiety. Um, dealing with like PTSD. I'm stressed out, pissed off at the world because I feel like the world is just out to fucking get me. And um, I'm on Facebook, on my phone, searching, scrolling through. And then all of a sudden, my ex-girlfriend, who just dumped me for this guy, uh, her photo's there with him. I blocked her. She blocked me. There's mutual blocking. Totally fine. This guy's there. Oh, they got married a month after we broke up. Now, I already have this ego blow from being told that I have this PTSD thing. I have an ego blow because my company I started is failing, and I now I have this ego blow from this shit. So I'm driving down to drop my kids off, and I'm stressed out, and my 16-year-old, 15-year-old at the time, acts like a 15-year-old. So she's just throwing freaking knives at me as I'm driving down the road because, you know, she's 15 and hormonal and doing teenage girl shit. And I get a text from my friend. Um, at this time, I was also a bouncer. I was working at uh, Club War and Sandy. And uh, one of our friends, she was also a Leo. She was a cocktail waitress and she became a Leo. She took her life. She was a good person, really good person. But it was the, the piece that tipped me over the edge. Basically, I drive down, drop the kids off, put on the best smile I can have. And like I was driving home and I borrowed my buddy's car and he had like the satellite radio. And every freaking station that I turned to was some sort of stupid fucking love song about loss and like how you can make it through it. So I'm just bawling like a big giant sissy la la the whole way home. I call my friends and I'd cut in and out of service. And, you know, I mean, service wasn't good back then. I, I had a sprint phone. I didn't have like, you know, good service, good anything. And so I'm just driving home and in a car by myself where I had to shut off the music and having an inner conversation with myself, trying to make it home, trying not to serve into oncoming traffic. Um, my friend David Luna did that when uh, he was supposed to be the best man in my second wedding. Uh, so he did that on purpose. So I decided I wasn't going to follow suit. So then I uh, make it home. And I'm okay for a minute. I go to the bar, hang out with friends. I don't have any money. They just bought me drinks and hung out, made sure I was okay. For like three weeks. And then it dawns on me, for the first time in my entire life, I'm alone for the holidays. For the most important holiday, which is all about, like, love and compassion. It's not a Hallmark holiday. It's the holiday for kids, you know. And so I had my dog, Montana. Um, and I just got a paycheck for, like, 300 bucks. So I went down to, this, I went down to the gun store. And nobody knew it because my facade was really good. And I bought a 45. I still have it today, till this day. I'm sitting. I go home. Stone cold sober. It's nighttime. Uh, the guy that I'm staying, I'm renting out his house. His name's Nick. Um, him and his wife and kids have all gone to bed. And I rack around. And I stick my gun in my mouth. 
right in my mouth. As soon as I do that, my dog Montana, or Monty, he used to do this thing where he, when he wanted attention, he'd jab you in the leg. He's like, use his potty, he's like, jab it. It hurt like a motherfucker. So I do it, or he does it, and I'm like, I pull the gun out again, put it in my mouth. I'm like, what, dude? This is going to be best for you. It's going to be best for everybody. You're going to be okay. So I go to put the gun back in my mouth, and he climbs across my lap, or across my arms. So I'm sitting on my bed, and pulls the gun down, and looks at my eyes, and looks right at a picture of my kids. So that was sitting next to me. And whines. Dog saved my life. It's really hard to talk about that. It's the lowest I've ever been in my entire life. Um, but it it was an eye-opening moment. And so after that, I sat there, held the gun in my hands, and he wouldn't move until I dropped it. He would not get off my lap. Um, he wouldn't get off my arms. He was he was like, no, dude, I'm here. And I just broke down in tears. So I uh, unloaded the firearm and walked upstairs and said, hey, man, you need to keep this. And he's like, where the fuck did you get a gun from? And I was like, I bought it today. And um, I just, I don't think that I need this in my life. I didn't tell him about any of it. Didn't even think at the moment about what would have happened if his little girls who called me Uncle JT would have come down and found, you know, that mess or would have done, what it would have done to his psyche or anybody else's. I was in a super fucking dark place. And when you're in a place where you feel like nobody cares, you don't care. But my dog saved my life. Unfortunately, he's not around anymore. He, uh, not doing it. He's not here anymore. So, uh, he passed away about two years ago. Three years ago. Yeah. So. He's your hero. Yeah. What happened after that night? Well, so after that night, the story gets funny. So, um, good friend of mine. So we're coming up on, um, Christmas Eve. Um, my friend Danny, she rolls over to my house. Well, she calls me, says, Hey, um, what are you doing for the holidays? I'm like, probably drinking heavily with my friends and making sure I don't have guns, joking around, right? She doesn't know what happened. Nobody knows what happens. It's just me fucking playing off on my dumb humor. Anyway, so she um she's like, Well, no, you're not. You're gonna come with me on an adventure. I'm like, Okay, cool. Um she shows up and she borrowed her sister's car. And we drive on Christmas Eve all the way to South Dakota. I have no idea where we were fucking going. I'm just there for the ride, and she's just trying to make sure that I'm okay because she knows it's my first holiday without any loved ones. You know, my mom and dad are there or whatever, but, you know, there's a point in your life where you think to yourself that you're bigger than asking your parents or your family for help. And that's where I was. And I fuck that now. If I have a hard time, I call my dad first thing. But... We uh we drove all the way up. We went to was it Mammoth Mammoth Hot Springs? There's a somewhere in South Dakota. There's a, a whole bunch of mammoths, woolly mammoths, somewhere. I don't know where the hell we went that day. And then from there we went uh on Christmas Day. We we drove straight to Mount Rushmore. And had no clue if it was going to be open or not. We just she just took me there on a win adventure, and we walk like we pull up. There's nobody at Mount Rushmore. Nobody at all. Like, completely vacant. Imagine that. Weird, right? Um, but there's a note on the gate that says, enjoy the presidents until Merry Christmas. So left the gate open so people could just walk in. So I have a photograph of me. So 
Danny took a photo from the entrance looking at the presidents and zero people except for me. Like, if you've ever been there, it's it's I chaos. haven't. I'd like to go. It's, well, yeah, it's chaos. It's go on Christmas Day. It's way better. <laughs> Just do it. It's way better. <laughs> so I'm feeling a little bit better. We make it all the way home, whatever. And then she drops me off. And then I go back into depression because now I'm not in adventure mode. I'm now back into, hey, this is the room I ate a bullet in. And, oh, by the way, Monty, he's laying next to me and he's like, will not like leave my side. And so now I'm like, okay, well, hold on now. I need to figure something out. I'm like, maybe I should join a sports league. Maybe I should go bowling. Maybe I should. Oh, wait, all that shit costs money. Never mind. Oh, have that. My buddy Brad, um, he just barely passed away, unfortunately. But my buddy Brad, he was running Utah Idol karaoke. And he just barely started up. So I used to joke around and sing karaoke and, and never had a correlation to anything, right? So he calls me up. He's like, hey, man. Um. I'm running a karaoke idol. I was like, oh, that's cool. Great, great story, bud. Do you need me to come bounce? He's like, no, I need you to come sing. I was like, no, I'm not going to come sing. And he's like, listen, I just need you to be a participant because I need to fill the seats to show these bosses that what's going on, that I'm okay, that I, this is going to be a thing. No, dude, I don't really want to do it. He's like, I'll buy you your drinks for the night. Okay. I'm not staying past one, you know, one or two songs. He's like, oh, you get one song. Okay, well, I'm not saying past that. You know, I don't care about anything else. He uh, bribes me with alcohol <laughs> to come out <laughs> and hang out and forces me into a social situation in which I didn't want any fucking part of. So I sing Hurt by Johnny Cash. Are you going to sing some of that for me now? No. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I would, but I just got done with the conversation about Monty and I just really don't want to go back. <laughs> I, we, I get that. So I sing Hurt. And I get a standing ovation. Oh. And I make it to the second round of this stupid fucking competition. And I have no want, desire. I've never sang, you know, well in my life. And it was the judges pull you aside at the end. They say, oh, hey, you know, they pulled Well, I don't know if they pull everybody, but they pulled me aside. And they were like, hey, like, you sang that from your heart. Like, we felt it in your voice. I'm like, yeah. And then I went, like, the next karaoke portion for me was like two weeks later. But I went two weeks without feeling mad. Two weeks. No, I take that back. Sorry. I went like two, three days, and then I sang karaoke with him just to, for fun on a Friday after work. And then I went two weeks. And then all of a sudden, I started like singing karaoke every week, and I didn't have anxiety anymore. I didn't have, uh, I didn't have an emotional trauma of hate and all this stuff. I was still grumpy, but I was like only grumpy for the thing that pissed me off for that moment. It would carry over a little bit, but not not like it was. And I wouldn't be mad at the, why the, the floor of the floor for like a month, right? Um, and so I started singing a lot. And what I learned is when you are singing karaoke, you have to focus and be in the absolute moment. You cannot control anything. PTS or PTSD you want to control everything around you. You want to control, you want to put it in a box and you want to tighten it down. If you're seeing karaoke, the cackling hen at the back is so loud that she's talking like cackling over you. All you can do is sing louder than the bitch. If there's a bar fight that happens in front of you, you can, you're not supposed to jump in. You can frog splash if you want, totally fine off the stage, but it's not going to do you any good. So you just keep singing. Somebody breaks a bottle, something happens. 
you are only in control of that moment. When I realized that, man, it, it opened up my eyes. It really opened up my heart. I started being able to focus on me. And I, I now just do check-ins with my counselor from the VA, and I haven't had major incidents. I've had two major incidents in seven years. Do you have a favorite song to sing karaoke to? Uh, yeah, I love Folsom Prison. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. Folsom Prison, but I sing Hurt by Johnny Cash, but I love Folsom Prison. Uh, I sing some Ed Sheeran, Photograph. I have a song to my daughters. Um, I tried my hand at some Zach Bryan and Tyler Childers. That failed epically, but I don't really actually care anymore because I'll just sing the same. I don't care. How is your relationship with your daughters today? Because I don't think when I was watching your podcast, you had mentioned part of that too, was that your daughter had said something or written, written you a note that she did not want you in her life anymore. So that's the summer that comes up right after. Oh, okay. That's the summer. Okay. Yeah. I'm doing good. And it's time to get my kids. I'm super freaking stoked. I've got a better paying job. I can, I have moved out of the basement cranny thing and I have like two bedrooms and a whole kitchen and like an area and a backyard. I get down there. My 16 year old's like standoffish the best. And uh she had this thing with her mom there. She was just always trying to appease her mom and she thought the right way to do that was by basically telling me to fuck off. Uh so it comes to the end of the 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 summer and we've done so much stuff like we tried to go fishing and hunting not hunting but um tubing and um all sorts of stuff like because i couldn't afford anything like i couldn't go to, i couldn't afford to go to like lagoon lagoon or yeah or <laughs> raging waters or whatever the hell in calabunga bay or whatever it is could afford those things you know <clears throat> i'm still dealing with crippling child support but i'm getting on my feet um and then my daughter wrote me a letter my sick my oldest daughter uh, wrote me a letter that said, basically, uh, the sound of your name makes me physically ill. And um, I hate you. I hate everything about you. She said in the letter, my mom's right. You are a piece of shit. And I was like, what? What? I'm like, you know, what? And the whole time I'm dealing with everything that, you know, the worst experience you can have as, a, as an ex or dealing with an ex where the the child manipulation and all this other shit that's going on. And I'd call my kids every night at seven o'clock. It's court ordered every night, no matter what I'd find a way to call them. Um, and all three of my kids would hop on the phone and within 30 seconds, they would be off the phone. They'd all tell me they didn't want to talk to me. How did you deal with that rejection? Did it cause you to plummet? Um, I, I just, at that point, in my life, I, everything was negative. So it was just like, well, there's just one more thing. And, you know, everybody wants to be like, oh, you know, I've always been a great dad. No, fuck dad. Nobody's ever a great dad until like you realize what it takes to be dad. Right. Um, so I was trying in all the wrong ways. What I was doing is I wasn't listening to what they wanted to do. I was doing things that I thought they might want to stupid shit. I mean, I remember very, very clearly like Kaylee, who's my oldest, um, once said, hey, dad, I really want you to listen to Cups. This is a cool song. I really like it. You want to do the Cups song with me? And I was like, yeah, yeah, in a minute. Yeah, yeah, in a minute. Yeah, yeah, in a minute. Like our generation was taught by our parents, right? But in a, in a separated home, you can't say yeah, yeah, in a minute. 
you got to give everybody to give them the attention right now. And, you know, for all the single dads out there that are listening to this, like you only have 18 summers. So every freaking minute counts. So give them the minute, whatever you're doing can wait. doesn't matter. So she wrote me that letter and that was devastating. And I took my daughters to my mom and dad's house. They wanted to see their grandma and grandpa before they left. And I went and I got completely housed, completely housed. Uh, I went to the bar. People knew that I was having a hard night. They started buying me drinks. Next thing you know, bars closed down. They won't let me leave until somebody's going to drive me home, which is totally fine because I didn't, I, you know, I gave the bartender my keys <laughs> at some point. I was like, I don't, I don't need these. Yeah, this is a, that's good. Dumb choices will happen if I have these. But like, you know, it's just housed completely smashed and broken to say the least so then i put on my best face and i tried to work through it you know i just took her and just told her i love her and i'm sorry and we had a a, a battle we had a little a falling out and um it's been eight years since i spoke to her um but she just barely got married I'm it's been eight years her. since you've spoken yep no, yeah eight years yep and oh, so JT, really, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, you you know, um, I can't even imagine think, that because you know I hear that, and I'm sure like your love for your kids. I love my kids so much. Like I'm dreading the day that they move out of the house. My husband's like, "Is it coming? Is it coming?" And I'm like, "Is it yeah. coming? Is it coming?" <laughs> that's <sighs> wow. Um, unfortunately, she was in a toxic situation with her mom. And um, I wasn't father that I am now. Um, so I've got to take ownership in my, my part, right? Um, Do you still have hope? Better. Yeah, she actually told my second oldest daughter that she's thinking about talking to me when she was at the wedding. And I sent okay. a letter to her letting her know that I'm here and you know that I love her and I've never not loved her. Um, and that you know if she ever needs to talk or she's ever in a situation, she can always give me a call. And I'll always answer. It doesn't matter the time of day. And how's the relationship with the other two? A 20-year-old's being a 20-year-old. She doesn't have time for dad? Mm, well, we had a falling out. She, we had a falling out on like Monday last week uh, because uh, she decided to tear after her little sister because she's jealous of her little sister. And so um, she now lives with her boyfriend. She was living with me, but then now she lives with a boyfriend. And, you know, dad's terrible now because, you know. It's okay for a 20 year old to go out for a 15 year old man if you guys have have kids that are girls just remember this okay no matter what you're never not going to love your kids but sometimes you just want to turn them on mute you'll always love your kids but sometimes you don't like them yeah yeah that's probably a better way to put that i think the mute button would be better a mute and a pause button would be great but um, so we'll we'll see how it works out. I, you know, honestly, our relationship is pretty strong. Um, you know, she, there's there was a lot of a lot of things that were said that night to, that were bad, pushed me down a path of of words that I you know you can't unsay. But there was also words that were said to everybody else by her. And uh, so I would give it a seven out of ten rating right now because <laughs> it, it'll eventually it, it will come back around. Um, but she's got to go figure out her life. She's been trapped for a long time, so so she's got the tools. She knows everything in the world. Is that damn know it? Know it all? Have you heard about the know it all fairy? No. 
So when your kids turn like 13, this damn know-it-all fairy comes in, sprinkles all this magic dust on them, and keeps revisiting them until you hit like 33. I'm, if I ever catch that son of a bitch, I'm clipping its wings. Well, that's definitely my youngest because uh, coincidentally enough, my youngest, my daughter is 15 as well. And she, you know, so as the baby, like she thinks she knows everything. I call her my little sassafras because, oh, wow, she has an attitude. And is yours learning to drive? Oh, yeah. We spent the entire, the entire summer with her driving my one ton truck. That's scary. So, That's scary. Yeah. I'm glad I only have three. I don't think my heart can take another one. <laughs> yeah, I only have three, too. So <laughs> I taught two of the three to drive. I mean, I, the oldest one, obviously, I didn't get a chance to teach to drive. But if I did, she'd be a better driver because she's apparently psychotic on the road. So. Well, tell me about the bearded Viking mead, not to be confused with meat, M-E-A-T. We're talking mead with a D company. Yeah. So the bearded Viking mead company um, is a company that I founded. Um about when when 2021 is, I think when we actually made, I actually made the, the company formed. Um, so I've got a beard. This is a shorter version of the beard. I cut about six inches off about like a week and a half ago. And uh, I was during the pandemic, I refused to wear a mask because the one time that I fucking wore a mask to go in a grocery store, the beard comes up across your eyeballs, right? So then you have to touch the mask to bring the mask back down your face. And as soon as I did that, I swear to God, every Karen in the entire state of Utah showed up and they were like yelling at me, don't touch it, you know, pulling their mask out away, <laughs> yelling at me not to touch my mask. I just want beer. And you're making it really fucking hard to get some beer because I got to deal with people like you. You're fucking annoying. And I'm like sitting there, I'm like, do you think it's okay for you to approach the dude who's way bigger than you to start yelling at him? Like, that's pretty ballsy. I'm not a big dude, but like, like, leave me the fuck alone. Like, there's a six foot thing. Just stay six feet the fuck away from me. I'm fine. Like, you do that. Everybody should always do that anyways. I'm fine with that. So my buddy gave me two beehives as a hobby. Um, I'm also a falconer. I have a peregrine falcon. So I have all these, like, weird, eclectic hobbies, right? I guess, if you will. So I harvest 100 pounds of honey. Didn't know I was going to harvest 100 pounds of honey. It was my first year having bees. Um. You can't do a lot. Eventually, you give away all of the honey. Like you give them much. Like all your friends now have honey, and they're like, "No, no, I don't. I don't put honey on everything." And you're like, "Okay, well, now what am I going to do with this extra fifty pounds?" A Viking at heart, and also my lineage is Danish and Scottish and Irish and all the issues. Um, <laughs> so I was like, "What? I wonder if I can make booze with honey." So. I figured out how to make booze with honey. Uh, it's a honey wine. It's what's what did it require it. a bit of research or did you just figure it out on your own? No, no. I, I started off with research and then okay. I went down this crazy rabbit hole of like two years of study and figured out my own proprietary process and developed it. Um, so the first honey, the first meat I made um, was 21% alcohol. Uh, and it was like Everclear with light honey notes at the end of it like you super light honey notes like barely there like it was honey notes because it was yellow <laughs> second batch was better it was only like 18 percent. third batch didn't ferment fourth batch went sour you know like i've been down all paths uh and now we have an entire company uh that we i built from the ground up i've got um five 
of my six other board members are all veterans. Um, and I That's either impressive. served with them. Yeah. Uh, they The one thing I know about most veterans is they do like a good alcohol. <laughs> Even the ones that shouldn't be drinking it, they still well, do. Well, who like can blame them? <laughs> yeah. So I have, we have a, a whole entire organization. We have a building that's going up right now. Um, if you guys are in Montana, hopefully in the next 30 days, we'll be able to open the doors. It's been a two-year process of getting that done. And every single permit, I think I've filled out 45-ish permits total to get it up and paid 45, worth of, 45 permits worth of fees uh, to get a building up and running. Um and be able to sell it. But we have 15 flavors ranging from blueberry and lemon to apple pie, habanero pineapple, vanilla bean and coffee. And this uh, is all be... since 2021. Uh, 2020 is when I started with the experimentation of my friends of see if I can get them go blind by drinking honey water. Wow. That's yeah. a lot. You've come far. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, we took second place in um beer competition it's not beer it's wine we went through eight gallons of mead doing two ounce pours in three hours where do you want to take this company nationally uh my goal is in three years to win the the nationals for mead flavor competition be the number one in the the country and then in five years i want to win the global competition do you want it sold in stores you want it in bars where do you want this so i don't care if it's sold in bars uh, obviously, that's a, a stream of revenue, but the whole point of the of the Bearded Viking Mead Company is the art of a meetup, um, which is a phrase that I I coined. Um, and what that is is it's bringing people together. Um, my experience as a veteran and as as just a dad, as a, as a man in the world right now, where it's toxic to be a man, apparently, or some shit. I don't know. Some masculinity is a bad thing, right? Yeah, yeah, it's super bad. <laughs> So my whole goal with the company initially was it was a joke, right? And and it's not a joke. And you know, people follow us, and we just want to give back to the community in the way that we can. And what we've found over life, our entire lives, all of us, is that people won't open up to you unless they know you. And then if they do know you, they typically won't open up all the way because they don't want to burden you with their burdens, right? Um. But you know what helps that? Alcohol. How did I know that was what you were going to say? All right. It's like uh, <laughs> foreshadowing, obviously. <laughs> uh, a drunk man's words are a sober man's thoughts, and that's true. Yeah. So a drunk person will tell you what's on their mind if they're drunk. In the, if they're inebriated enough to, to be inebriated, but not over that limit, right? Because then otherwise, you know, they they just speak in cursive anyways. So it just doesn't make sense. Um, we formed the, the a meetup, and um, the idea is to bring people together. I'd rather you, if you're going to buy Bearded Viking Meat, you can go to the bar if you want, but I'd rather you not because I don't want you to drink drive. And I know you're going to, uh, for sure. Like, people drink all the time, and then they drive. Like, I've been guilty of drinking and then being, you know, like, had two drinks and then driving. And, you know, I'd rather you just not even risk it. But I'd rather you actually grab a bottle or two, or we have Capri Sun pouches now um, that you can take to the lake or whatever you want to do. That's so cute. Yeah. Um, I'd rather you take it and I'd rather you go to a campfire and I'd rather you just spend time with your friends and family. I'd rather you just do that. You don't even have to drink mead to be part of a meetup. You don't have to drink any alcohol. We have tons of sober friends that show up to our meetups. Do you have Diet Coke? 
Uh, no, I'm I'm not a Coke distributor yet. I got water right now though. Okay. I'd come if there was some Diet Coke. (laughs) I mean, we could probably make that happen for sure. For sure. You have all this going on. And if that's not enough, what comes next? Is it the Vikings Outlaws and Cowboys podcast? Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah. Vikings out, uh, Vikings Outlaws and Cowboys podcast. What is the idea behind that podcast? That podcast is about men's mental health. hundred percent. That's all it is. Um, it's a, so in watching the world and the pandemic, I realized that people fucking forgot how to hang out. Somewhere along the lines, the world shifted. Maybe we moved into an alternate universe. I don't know. Whatever it is, right? Who cares? But men stopped being men. And people forgot to hang out, how to hang out. They're like, oh, yeah, hey, let's, you know, not to knock, you know, anything specifically, but they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I can't come out because, you know, I'm just worried about COVID. Okay, cool story, bro. So what are you going to do tonight? Oh, I was just going to sit here and play video games all night and literally watch the world, watch your days tick down. No, no. We got comfortable because I certainly did. I know COVID, when that whole shutdown, it was awful. It was, you know, people lost their jobs and businesses went under. Mm -hmm. But as for me, I have to tell you, JT, I kind of miss a part of it. Because it was nice having all my family here, my kids. I didn't have to go anywhere. Didn't have to, you know, we just sat here and did puzzles or whatever. So I'll admit, I got really comfortable with that. Yeah, but the problem is, is in order for a society to function, you need to be involved in society. I agree. So I understand the comfortability. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, complacency kills, right? That's a a true statement. So when you become complacent, you sit in your home, you don't go out and do anything. You're not empowering yourself. And if we're talking about veterans and we're talking about like how to save veterans' lives, or we're talking about what, you know, the Vikings Outlaws and Cowboys podcast is, which is being a man, uh, you actually have to go do something. Toxic masculinity, that whole lie that's been spun by the, the, the media right now and all that, that other shit. You know what's toxic about masculinity? The people that don't open doors for women who treat women with disrespectfully, who will talk shit about a transgender human, who will do those things. You know what else is also toxic about masculinity? Is the quote unquote good men who do not stand up for yes. the weak. And if I can interject, do you know who Jordan Peterson is? Yeah, I love that guy. I love Jordan Peterson. Yeah. And I saw a clip. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think it was just on Instagram or whatever. And one of the things that he said that I thought, oh, wow, he's going to get some flack for this, but it's so true, is he said men should be capable of dangerous things. Absolutely. And that's true because, and this is where as a society, it's really destroying us. Men are the protectors and I don't have a problem with that. No. It's just men and women were different and men should be capable of doing dangerous things. You should be capable of protecting your loved ones, your property, and there's nothing wrong with that. And we need more of that. Absolutely. And, um, we, we actually talked about that in one of the episodes. I don't remember which one. We talked about a bunch of dumb shit, but um, and a bunch of really important shit too. But um, we got to have some we, dumb stuff in there too. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, there's a whole bunch of that. I'll have to get to that in a second. But, like, the whole point of it is, like, you know, we're all, you know, me and Alex, who's my co-host, we're both veterans, both Marines. And we talked about, like, being, I became this gentle because I was so violent. Don't make me be violent again. We also identified that in every home, every home, you have two main roles that that run the home and you, there, you can assign them a gender if you want, or a sex, whatever the terminology is these days, like I can't keep up and don't care to. What are your you pronouns assign, again? Uh, <laughs> fucking off. <laughs> my daughter has this thing. She's so funny. My 15 year old on her Instagram. And so I had to steal it from her and I'm sure you've heard of it before. She would put my pronouns are USA. So I had to steal it. Awesome. That's her. solid. That's good. That's awesome. I hate, I hate the whole, I can't, I can't do it. Yeah, me it's, too. My, my brain don't work. Yeah. Whatever. Don't <laughs> no, work your brain way. does work. That's the problem, uh, JT, yeah, is that uh, too many brains are not working today. And we're letting enough. the minority who are so mentally deranged or confused say that this is what is right. Yeah. It blows the my mind. You know, my dad passed away. It's been like uh, 10 years, maybe. And I think of how different it was even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Where we are now, I just, I never could, growing up in the 80s, I, mean, yeah. I never could comprehend this. It is absolutely insanity. Well, there's a lot to that whole thing there, right? So so if you if you really, you know, on the podcast, we talk about that stuff. We talk, we really go into it. Just much like you, you've talked about a lot of like serious stuff here, right? We, we talk about what it really means to be a man. We have like the five pillars of being a man that we formulated together and um, you know, number one is just working harder than the next person. Like you have to outwork life no matter what, like if you want to be able to protect your family, then do something that you can learn how to protect your family. It, you know, you have to love people. You have to love, tell everybody you love every single person that I talk to that is a part of my life on a weekly, daily basis, man or woman. I tell them, I love them when they leave. When I'm, I'm like, Hey, I love you, man. Like, hey, I love you, sweetie. Or, Hey, you know, I love you. Thank you for being here. You have to do that. You have to learn how to communicate. You know, you have to do, the, there's five pillars. It starts off as a burden because men are dumb and we are very, very rock, chucky, stabby, stabby. And uh, we have to learn our way through it. And then it become, they become the pillars of men. And, you know, in every home you have, you have two basic roles. You have a protector role, a protector slash provider role, and you have the person actually runs the home. And that's how that works. And you can be gay and you can be a lesbian and you can be any kind of alphabet soup in between. But if you have, if you are in a home, in a relationship with another human, those roles have to be defined. And the easiest way to do that is to go to a bar and have one of you pick a fight and see who's, who stands in front of the other. <laughs> My husband always tells me, that I, for our kids, I am the soft place to fall. And he's the one that's like, get up off your butt and go do something. Yeah. You, you just have to outwork everybody else. I mean, no matter your talent level, you have to be harder. You have to be able to get up. And you have to be resilient in life. If you're not resilient, life will cheer you up and you won't make it past your teens. It doesn't matter. And that's what my message to all veterans is. is like, stop looking at that negative shit. You heard my negative story. What did I do from it? I climbed out of it. I stopped looking at the negative stuff. Does negative shit still happen? Well, fuck yeah, all the time, every day. It doesn't matter. Because you know what? Tomorrow is still a new day. Change the world. But you have to change the world by changing your world. And in order to change your world, you have to change your mindset. 
do great things. Well, I have to ask you about Montana. And I know you don't want to broadcast this. Montana be- sucks. Don't because come I know. I know. And my, you know what? It's so funny because my nephew is an is a pilot. And so when he flies, sometimes people ask him, do Utah like he's like, oh, it's a shithole. You don't want to go there. Yeah. And I know that that's how <laughs> you feel about Montana. We're going to kind of do this on the download because okay. Okay. I have been watching a show that I really got into. It's called, I think it was Destination America. And oh, yeah. one of their things was Montana. And again, on the down low, I keep telling my husband, oh my gosh, I want to go up there. We have to go up there and see what Montana is all about because it looks spectacular. The weather looks great. I know in the winter, I'm sure it's harsh, but there's none of that 135 degree temperature. Oh, there is? A lot. It's, I'll tell you about it. Keep For longer going. periods it, of time it. than in Utah? Um, so our first year we moved up here, they didn't have an AC system in the house after we bought, after I bought it. Oh, gross. And it hit 107 degrees for three weeks straight. Really? Same winter, that winter it hit negative 30, like for two weeks. See, I don't mind the cold as long as I'm in the house and it's warm, <laughs> but the I heat, the, I, yeah, the the heat, heat I don't do well with, but what is it like living in Montana? Do you love it? Um, yeah, so when I was 12, um, I watched a river run through it. Oh, river. yeah. And I said, that jackass can catch fish. I can catch fish. I'm going to, by the time I hit 40, I'm going to own a, a ranch in Montana. And I said it, and I said it to the universe basically for so long that I forgot. And then fortuitously, I bought my home in a handshake agreement on the side of a mountain up here. Yeah, it's a crazy story, um, but uh, no realtor involved, nothing. I have a 20-acre uh, gentleman's ranch is what they call it, or mini ranch right now. And, um, you have 20 acres? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. See, that is my dream. The older I get, the fewer neighbors that I want. Mm-hmm. So to be able to go somewhere and not have anybody near you just sounds like heaven. But I my am a people my- person. No, I'm really not. <laughs> my closest neighbors are two acres away that way. Oh, and then my 20 other acres. Five that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Uh, Montana's terrible though. I wouldn't, I would one out of 10 stars would not recommend. There's no fishing. There's no hunting. It's just crazy. There's, there's no beautiful vistas. None of that. No, not at all. If you ever go on my social medias, you'll never see any of that. You won't see any, any views of, of things like that. Having elk in your yard sucks because they eat all the fucking grass, you know, like it's, terrible not great are you building where is your um building is that Uh, on your property or somewhere that's commercial no so i bought four and a half acres in the town of columbus and we just can we just stop here for a second yeah go ahead let's think i hope you give yourself a little pat on the back and know it's okay to do that about where you were in 2015 yeah. Living in a friend's basement. And now you have 20 acres that you're living on. And mm-hmm. you just bought. Well, I don't know, just bought, but you bought four acres of land yeah. for your company. Do you know what that is to me? That's like the American dream. That's like a testament to America. 
I um, it's weird when I look at it, right? Um, I was literally homeless for a little bit, living in my truck, parking my truck around the corner, couch surfing, uh, getting showered once a week, being real stinky, um, all those terrible things, you know, and uh, had to choose between like gas money or um, dinner, you know, like, <laughs> uh, and then I look at where I'm at right now and I'm like, okay. And that I do a lot of self-reflection and, and my fiance actually um, thinks that I'm a, she, she does a lot of philosophy. She understands a lot of philosophy. She's really smart and whatnot. So she, she thinks that I'm a stoic um, because I do a lot of reflection. Uh, and, you know, if you were to ask me again, like, how did you get here? I would tell you this is all about trial and error and embracing failure and working harder every single day than anybody else around you. You ain't going to wake up tomorrow and be rich. And if you do, it's a facade, and then you're going to be poor real quick. So I had to teach myself how to manage my own money. Um, I had to teach myself how to be single and how to be alone so I could actually be ready to be with somebody. Um, I had to sow my oats, if you will, during that time because I'd never been able to sow my oats. Anyway, I kind of did, but like, <laughs> you know. Um, but the battle and the journey to get to where I'm at from where I was, to me, um, I don't I don't think of it as anything. It was just what made me me. Um, I, I can't really give myself a pat on the back because the journey was difficult and it's rough and you know I fell down a lot and I failed a lot um, and it's not done. Well, how about this? Um, Do you at least feel good about your accomplishments? Uh, I feel good about being a dad. And I feel good mm. about giving a message to others to give them hope. And what That's is your message? It's just, you know, no matter what happens in your life, you have a choice. And that choice is to live tomorrow in happiness or suffer in agony and, and pain. You choose. It's really it. It's like you can either choose to suffer or you can choose to be happy. It's a choice every single day. And some days you can choose to be in pain and that's okay. But take a look at yourself. And if you're seeing more suffering than you are happiness, own it and fix it. That's with, how you become happy. With all of your endeavors, everything that you're doing, where can we find you in all these different places <laughs> on the web? Uh, so we'll give you my, the bearded Viking handle. That's usually the best ones. Um, so on the TikToks, which I, by the way, I think TikTok's hilarious. That shit's cool. I've learned how. I, I got learned too scared and I got rid of TikTok. <laughs> Here's the thing: if the Chinese are really gonna watch all of your shit, they can. They've already been doing it, so it don't matter. I'd be more worried about the the, the federal government trying to watch what you do. It. I don't know. They I are... just had so many people going that I've talked to on the podcast. What are you doing? You know they can track all your IP address and blah blah. blah. I'm like, ah, no. <laughs> Whatever. If China wants to come back or whoever it is, that whatever. So that ship TikTok. is already sold. Yeah. So I'm on TikTok, Bearded Viking Mead Co. Okay. Uh, also on Instagram. You can find us also on the Facebook. And our website is beardedviking.com. And what about your podcast? Uh, it's Vikings, Outlaws, and Cowboys. It's on everything. It's on Spotify, Pandora, Apple, Stitcher. I don't know how that is. Uh, Google. Uh, Anywhere you, you can find you, a podcast. Yeah, YouTube as well. Yeah. And JT, what does America mean to you? 
So I've been actually thinking about this ever since you sent that to me because it's a loaded question. Uh, super loaded question. Um, I so I'm going to answer it in three phases, okay? Okay. Because I've di- I've been different phases. So America, when I enlisted, meant a way to protect my family. When I got out, America was an opportunity to grow. And what America means to me today is the opportunity to help. It gives me the opportunity to change lives. And I wouldn't have that if I didn't have the freedoms that I have to do the dumb shit that I do. JT, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your American story with us. Uh, Absolutely. It was great to, to be on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 